Hey everyone, it's Pastor Brian here with a special bonus episode of the Engaging Culture Podcast. I am joined by Pastor Damian Chandler of Capital City Seventh-day Adventist Church. He was kind enough to come out uh, to be a guest speaker for week one of our Healing an Ethnically Wounded Nation series, uh, and then was also kind enough to spend a little bit of time with me uh, sharing some of the stories that he shared out there. So I hope you enjoy this interview, and uh, Pastor Damian, thanks for the time. I appreciate it. It's great to be here, Brian. It's great to be to be uh, with the Bridgeway community uh, family. Yeah. So uh, when we were debriefing that first night of the series, I I described your presentation to the rest of our team as a showstopper. Like I just felt like you could hear a pin drop in that room oh, when you were presenting. It was it was really really powerful, and and your story is is just just incredible. Could we kind of go back to the beginning a little bit? Because you shared some of your background in terms of specifically where you've come from and where you were raised, sort of give you a little bit of a unique perspective on some of the issues we're talking about in the series. Sure. Um, well, as I said on that night, it, I, I found it rather ironic that I was a presenter on that night because I am actually not African-American. I was born in Toronto, Canada. Uh, but I was raised on the island of Barbados, and uh, um, in, in Barbados, there's this uh, there's this saying. It, it says 95% black and 5% white, and that was that was my experience. Um, I think in my entire experience, I probably had one white teacher. Um, I I didn't have any. Uh, all my doctors were black. All my presidents were black. The business owners around me were black, and and with that in mind, it it really creates it really creates for you this this understanding of yourself that that you are are a king that that there is no limits to what you are able to do. Of, of course, there's other ills in our community. Sure. Um, there's ills of light skin versus dark skin and all of that. But uh, for the most part, you know, you kind of grow up believing that you can do, you can do and you can achieve absolutely, absolutely anything. And so it was an amazing gift um, to grow up in that kind of environment. So then, I mean, would it be fair to say, I mean, throughout this series, we've been hearing from, from different individuals sharing their experiences with, with racism and, and things to that effect, and certainly we'll get to some of your experiences with that in a moment, but kind of what you're describing is, is the uniqueness of the environment where you were raised. You didn't experience a lot of that kind of junk early in your life, right? Be just because of, of where you were. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Absolutely not. And I, I, I didn't, I, yeah. I didn't, I don't think that I had much of an opportunity to, um, you know, everyone around me was, was literally my race and, mm-hmm. and it, it created something, uh, for me, um, who I don't know if I can, if I can describe Barbados was the motherland. Mm-hmm because it belonged, it belonged at least in my eyes to me and to people like me. Yeah. So there was no longing in my heart of being anywhere else. It was, it was our land. It was our place. I could go to places where my grandfather owned property and a massive, you know, acreages where people knew my grandfather's name. In fact, I didn't tell this story that, that time, um, that night, 
but it, it stuck in my mind. It's a story that stuck in my mind. Brian, I went to, um, with my dad or with a teacher and we were visiting a senior, uh, you know, an elderly person in a uh-huh. community not too far away from me. I walked through the, the door, Brian, and the lady looked me in the face and she said, what's your name? And I said, my name is Damien Chandler. And she said, Chandler from St. James Parish. And I said, yes. And she led me by the hand into her living room. And she said, that piece of furniture that you see in that corner was carved by your grandfather. Wow. It was stunning. <laughs> wow. It was amazing to the legacy. Um, the legacy was just, was just amazing. And, you know, to walk into a random home and mm. to know that my grandfather had created a piece of furniture that was still beautiful, still standing, and this woman was still proud of. That's the kind of uh, experience that I had growing up in Barbados. Yeah, wow, that's really cool. Uh, so then, so then you ended up coming to the States and describe sort of the circumstances behind that and then some of what you began to experience once you were, once you were this, this way. Yeah, so I, um, I came to the States originally for school. Um, and so I was coming from Toronto, Canada, and I went to a school, a historically black university in Huntsville, Alabama called Oakwood University. Um, and it was in Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, needless to say, that was a different, the city itself was a different experience. The, Not exactly so, Barbados. No, it wasn't Barbados. <laughs> the school was amazing. School was great history. In fact, it had been a, uh, either a slave plantation or something like that in the past. There was a slave cemetery there on campus. And, um, you know, while I was sitting in the pews at, at that school, we listened to amazing people like Colin Powell and and just they would constantly bring, you know, uh, powerful black people to our school and just add to our experience. But outside of the school, it was Huntsville, Alabama. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember um, when I left Barbados, it had no sense necessarily of racism. And I would listen to African-American friends talk about it and think that it was a hoax. Because when I left Barbados, I saw myself as a prince. I saw myself as a king. And I thought that every single person who met me thought the same thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I'm in Huntsville, Alabama one day, and I was in a shoe department. And the store was about to close. And I was not finished shopping. They had announced that the store was going to close. I hadn't finished shopping. I was looking for a pair of shoes. And then I heard a call over the intercom. The call said, um, customer needs help in the shoe department. Well, I looked around and I didn't see any other person in the shoe department. It wasn't that big other than me. And then I wondered why I had heard that announcement. And then I looked over and I saw the, uh, the cash lady, the cash, the lady at the cash register and she was clearing her till and she had the cash uh, tray in her hand and she was staring at me and I caught her eye. And all of a sudden I realized I was a black man in the United States of America and wearing a hoodie when the store was closing caused this woman to really see me in a different way. And it was the first time in my life that I caught it, that everybody didn't see me the way I saw myself. Mm-hmm. For, for those of us who have not had that sort of experience, and, and I don't even mean that 
that experience is an isolated event. But I, but I, I guess I mean to experience something like that, which is so radically different from anything you've, you've experienced in the past. I just, I think it's hard to appreciate how disorienting that must've been. Oh, it, I mean, horribly disorienting, but you know, when we go back in history, this is the history of even African slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, the pictures that we've painted of Africa have been horribly like just crazy. Yeah. It, no one talks about Africa being the cradle of ingenuity and the, the, the beginning places of life itself. The right. book of Genesis talks about those rivers running through and those rivers, Tigris and Nile, they're, they're in Africa. When you right. talk about the pyramids, that's Africa. And so to have African people leave there as princes and kings and come here as slaves, horribly disorienting. You know, just you, you, you don't really know, you know, like, am I wrong? Are they right? You know, it, it was, um, it was, it was a, it was a crazy experience. Yeah. Now, fast forwarding, um, a number of years, uh, as you were sharing a couple weeks ago, I, I was particularly moved by some of what you shared as it pertained to kind of your life as a, as a father, Sure. Uh, with your son, I've got a seven-year-old and a five-year-old myself. I believe you said your son was seven, was it, or something close to that? Or at I least have a, I have a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old. <clears throat> so, um, you know, just being a, a dad of boys and, and all of that, I, I found the stories you shared about them uh, to be just incredibly poignant, and and some of the difficulties that you face as they've been raised in an environment where. Um, they're having to face some of those same challenges from a young age. Um, can you share maybe some of the stories you shared on, on Sunday night? Uh, sure. About sure. Um, well, um, first of all, as a Af- now, you know, African American cultured uh, person, I, I am clean and raising African American boys. I'm keenly aware, Brian, that my sons cannot afford to do what maybe your sons right. are able to do. Mm-hmm. My sons cannot afford to, you know, when I go to the store and I'm shopping, I'm keenly aware that depending on what article of clothing I buy, that could be the difference between my son coming home alive or my son ending up dead. Um, and so that weighs heavily on my wife and, and, and my heart. And um, as such, we're always training and, and teaching our sons and, and trying to help them to be respectful. But being respectful for an African-American kid is not enough. He has to go over and above being respectful and in some cases cannot afford to make mistakes. Um, we, that came true one day when we were driving to a soccer tournament. Now, I was speeding a little bit. You know, every once in a while, your foot gets a little bit heavy. Sure. And, uh, I, and we got pulled over by a cop. When we got pulled over, the, uh, the, the cop stopped the car and, and started to come towards ours. And immediately I, I felt the tension in, in our car. And my youngest kid, he's seven, he says to me, Daddy, are we going to get home alive? Wow. Are you going to get home alive? Are you going to be okay? Now, 
for a seven-year-old right. to connect a regular traffic stop with the mortality of his father yeah. and know that a regular traffic stop is dangerous for daddy is is extremely difficult way to live. And then when that child, if he has that understanding of cops, and if I have that understanding of cops, when the cop comes up to the window, you're a little bit more fidgety mm -hmm. because you're not thinking about a $150 fine. You're thinking about whether or not you're going to see your wife again. Mm -hmm. So do your hands shake? Yeah, maybe. Do, do you fumble with the stuff in the glove compartment? Maybe. And when you start fumbling and your hands start shaking, then, then does the cop automatically think that there must be something wrong? And does he start to get agitated? Possibly. Now, if I were not a black man, he would probably get agitated and, and say, sir, calm down. Um, but too many times in our recent history, um, a black African-American man is just not given the same graces as uh, as others yeah so, what, what what we've seen um, and obviously these stories are are well documented and, and what we've seen even in in the Sacramento area uh, it, it simply it raises I mean as you've described just now in seemingly a routine situation it raises all sorts of questions and possibilities that yes. create um, you know an extraordinary amount of fear I have to assume yes. Uh, in yes. situations. And, and that fear, Brian, is, yeah. is not, we can't get away from that fear being tied to a fear of a particular race. Yeah. Uh, I was watching a clip, if you allow me to digress a little bit. Please do. I was ahead. watching a clip um, on TV the other day of the Bundy brothers uh, and father. So mm. these people took over federal lands. And after taking over federal lands, they armed themselves with a militia. They were openly carrying weapons and they dared sheriffs, army or government to come on the land. It was it was absolutely abhorrent to me that yep. they were able to have a press conference. Right. I was like, what? are you <laughs> kidding me? Yeah. You, you threaten federal officers and you are still able to have a press conference. And then. At the end of the press conference, the sheriff was shaking their hands and he called all of his sheriffs off of the land and allowed these men to occupy that land for, what was it, a month? Yeah, it's, it's, long, it was it's, unimaginable, it's unimaginable to think how that would play out if those, if those men were African-American, right? Yeah. Not, not that way. No, it does not turn out. That, it doesn't. I mean, we can't even have a barbecue in a park and our kids can't play with toy guns. Yeah. You know, and, and so, you know, for my son to have to ask those questions at a routine traffic stop or for him to even feel that fear. And we're not pouring fear into him. Every cop that we see when I'm with my sons, I take him up to the cop and I introduce him to the police officer. And I said, this is our friend. Right. Despite that, and despite that extra work that many people who are not of my race don't have to do, my yeah. son still feels this unbelievable fear for his father when I get pulled over for a routine traffic stop. Yeah. And, and, and once again, I, 
I suspect that so, I mean, I, I see in, in large portions of, of the white community, and I, I don't, I certainly don't mean to speak for everybody. I know there are, sure, are sure. massive exceptions to this. Um, what I perceive to be, I think, a lack of empathy for some of what you're describing. Sure. And, and I just have to assume that there's just part of, part of us as humans that if we just haven't had an experience, we have a difficult time fully understanding how difficult an experience is. Yes. So, so I think that there's part, part of that going on. There definitely is. And I think that the most painful thing as a human being is, um, is to sense that there is no desire to understand. Yeah. Um, uh, recently, there was a protest downtown uh, at the death of Stefan Clark. I, I happened to be at a community meeting with mostly African-American leaders, and, and they, were, they said that there was going to be a protest downtown. Yeah. I was just going to be a good pastor, show up and just support, you know, and, and encourage or, or just see it, whatever. And I just, I felt like if the Lord just swept me into this thing, and it was a different experience marching with these people. Hmm. I mean, that was the same protest where they shut down the Golden One Arena and yep. they shut down the Golden Run, One Arena with this, this young man's family out there grieving. And it was just being there. It was just hard for me to have, have to have conversations with people about, you know, I just want to go to a game. You know, I don't really, you know, all of this, somebody dying doesn't really matter to me. I just... I want to go to a game. Can I just go to a game? So this, this uh, young man came up to me and he said, you know, dude, I just want to go to the game. Why are you guys shutting down the arena? I was like, well, somebody died and they're trying to bring some notoriety to all of these deaths. He said, could you do it tomorrow? <laughs> like, <laughs> do it on another day. I yeah. like, really? I so, so there was this very poignant moment, Brian, where um, the, the crowd, I was with five African-American pastors, and our job was to make sure that everyone, every one of the protesters got home and every one of the cops got home. Mm-hmm. The protesters, I was, I was, it was explained to me. I had never done that before. It's like, listen, let's show, let's let the protesters know that we love them more than we love the property. And mm-hmm. if we do that, they'll hear us. If they know that we're walking with them, yeah. They'll hear us. And so we, they take over a restaurant. They're protesting outside of an outdoor restaurant. And there's this young man who is there. And the young man walks up to a guard, security guard. And he says to him, do you care that Stefan Clark died? Do you care that he was shot? Security guard was a white man. Security guard says, actually, I don't. Wow. And this young man pulled his hand back to punch him in the face because you saw the rage. Wow. Right? Um, someone that I consider my family was shot and died. And you, you can't even make your mouth say that that, that was horrible. Right. You know, that would have de-escalated it. And I turned to that young man and I said to him, young lion. And he said, yes. And I said, do you have children? And he said, yes. Show me a picture of your children. And he took out his cell phone and showed me a picture. And I said, it's my job to make sure that you see your kids tonight. Mm. Let me help you make sure you see your kids tonight. Wow. And he turned to the security guard and he said, if these pastors did not care about us this much, I would have punched you in the face. And he wow. walked away. 
And in that moment, I learned the power of empathy. Yeah. To walk with someone in their shoes and try to feel their pain and realize that that pain doesn't have to be mine in order for me to appreciate it. Yeah, man, that, that's a, that's a powerful story. You know, I, I, I have one or two more questions I want to ask you, but I, I just want to share a quick anecdote and I've actually shared this on a previous episode of our, of our podcast is I was not at that game, but I was at a game four or five nights later, or I should say I attempted to attend a game four or five nights later, uh, another game that was also shut down by protesters. And uh, my son, who's seven, he and I go to Kings games, you know, several times a year, pretty, pretty frequent. And uh, anyway, long story short, <clears throat> we got to the arena, I could instantly tell things were not normal. Uh, and as we got closer to the, to the gates, of course, we, we heard the protesters. And you know, was there part of me that wanted to go to the game? Sure, of course there was. I drove to Sacramento. I wanted to go to the game. But I remember thinking to myself, A, this is a moment to help my son understand some things. Uh-huh. And then B, as I, as I sat there as a suburban white person and I observed what was happening, the thought that kept going through my mind was these individuals are expressing and articulating a pain that I cannot possibly fully understand. Yeah. And I need to honor and respect that pain. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so my son and I, we sat there for a while. I explained to him something, you know, I'm, I'm being sensitive to what's going on. He's a sure. small child. He doesn't need all the details, but I just said sure. something terrible happened in our community and people are really sad about, it. and I, you know, and I don't mean to paint myself as a, as a positive example here necessarily. I think there's certainly more I could do, but, but again, just, I, I immediately had to resist that sense of sort of privileged frustration yeah. of not being able to go to a game with my son and instead just say, okay, I, I need to try to understand this sure. better. Um, sure, sure. Anyway, it was just, it was, a, it was a surreal thing to, to see, really, it was. It's very, it's very powerful. And, and two things about that that have meant a lot to me is, Brian, uh, when I was sitting in that meeting and a woman whose son was, was brutally, you know, was shot, murdered 14 years ago in another police shooting, she was still shaking. Yeah. 14 years, she was still crying. And so for me, all I need to do in order to feel it is I need to humanize these people who've been gunned down yeah. by holding my son and imagining somebody's son, like my son, Salem, yeah. was shot. They will never see that son again someone shared something that was so powerful to one of the, uh, one of the people trying to get into the arena who didn't understand. Mm -hmm. The person saw a uh, father or a mother and her son going to the game. And she was like, I just can't understand why I can't go to the game. And he said, is this your son? And she said, yes. It's like, are you going to go to this game with your son? She said, yes. And he said, Stefan Clark have two kids, has two kids or had two kids who will never go to a game with their father ever. Yeah. They lost that opportunity to do what you are currently doing. That's why we're out here. Right. Right. 
Yeah. And that's, again, that is humanizing it. That is, this is not a, uh, a nameless faceless situation in the news. This is, this is real life. Um, I want to ask you two more questions. One about, uh, just your life as a parent and then one kind of you as a pastor, kind of some things that you've seen. Um, the first is this, I mean, you talked about introducing your, your sons to, to police officers, telling them they're, uh, there are friends and, and things to that effect. Uh, what else are you doing in terms of just the parenting of your own kids, the pastoring of children in your congregation to, to help them process some of the challenges that they're going to face just in light of racism that still exists in our, in our culture? Um, you know, Brian, I, I don't know that I'm doing a great job like you. I don't think I'm a poster child for anything um, but there are some things that I am doing personally in my community. Um, and, and one of them is to really rewrite uh, what our community thinks about when they think about a black man. Uh, I'm six foot two and a half, almost six foot three. I'm mm-hmm. over 200 pounds. And I want to rewrite. So I've, I've had to visit my son's school a few times and sit down and have a conversation and start the conversation by saying, I have a master's of divinity and my, my wife has a doctorate. And when I come to this school to deal with my, my child, you can either deal with um, the educated uh, man, African-American man, um, or you could deal with an angry parent. Either way, you're going to deal with me. Right. And I am going to force you to deal with me and I'm going to create environments for you to deal with me where it doesn't have to be confrontational. So every single morning uh, I actually am at my son's school and I'm helping with traffic. I have that yellow vest on Mm -hmm. and I'm directing traffic. Why? Because I want people to know that it's not only white males that care about their sons and daughters. Yeah. Black males care about their sons and daughters, too. And I'm standing out there not as the maverick because there, there are ton. I mean, most of the black fathers that I know are amazing. So it's not about it's not about trying to be unique. Yeah. No, it's trying to say to the rest of the community, this is not unique at all. I'm representing every black father that I know in my church, who would be here doing the same thing if they had as flexible a schedule as me. So it's um, I'm rewriting. Um, through my presence, you know, what an African-American father is about, that we're we're not thugs, we're not, we're not gang bangers, we're, we're, we're great fathers, and we love our kids, and our kids are amazing. I'm being present in my son's school, and uh, being, being uh, very forceful about how he will be treated, and how he will treat others. Yeah. Um, And then at our, at our church, um, we are trying to lead our young men, to be uh, in the same way, respectful of police, sharp with you know how they carry themselves, but also aware of the danger. So we had uh, the police chief, uh, we had a really powerful moment at our church where the police chief was there and we had the young men of our church um, uh, on, uh, on Saturday morning during our worship service, come up to the podium and introduce themselves and tell them, tell him who they are, and explain to them that they explain to him that they are not the enemy, that they are educated, that they have a future, and that they don't see him as a part of the enemy uh, 
enemy either. So little steps along the way and touching little things along the way. Uh, the final thing that we are doing um, among many is that we have a conversation that we have right in uh, the Oak Park community called Barbershop Talk, uh, where we realize that African-American men uh, love to have conversation, but we have conversation in very specific places. <laughs> On the basketball court sometimes, in the barbershop. It's just traditionally a place where we get together talk. We talk about sports, we talk about politics, our families, a space for men to meet and, and talk. And so on uh, the first Tuesday of the month, a bunch of guys, sometimes five of us, sometimes 20 of us, get together at Chicago's on Broadway. We have dinner together and we, we talk. We talk about everything. We talk about leaving a legacy. We talk about being entrepreneurs. We talk about what it means to be a man of God. We, we just talk. And it's amazing. Uh, to hear multiple generations yeah. just sharing uh, their experiences together. So, yeah. yeah. Wow. That's really cool. Uh, last question for you. Uh, just in light of this whole, I mean, the, the, the Sunday night series we've been doing, of course, healing an ethnically wounded nation, looking at just our city, how have you seen the faith community uh, be part of that process of healing? Some of the ethnic wounds we have even, even here in our city and, and what, what are some, some places where you look and say, you know, I think we've got some more work we can do here? Yeah, I was, I've been here for about four years now. And um, I was really amazed when I came uh, at uh, how engaged the uh, faith community was here in Sacramento. Sacramento actually reminds me of, uh, of the South in that uh, faith leaders are really intricately involved in the goings and the comings of the city, the flow of the city. Um, they, they are having conversations with politicians. They are uh, engaging their communities for voting and, and those types of things. And so that, that was really good. That was really, really amazing. Uh, I think the challenge that I've experienced in Sacramento is a challenge that you guys at Bridgeway have been trying to uh, hedge and trying to approach is that our dialogue and conversation as a faith community between races happens in churches around tables. But once we get up from the table, we're finished. We're done. There, there, is, there is nothing that occurs after that. And so it's a great introduction. I'll, you know, I'll, I can shake the hand of any pastor anywhere but, but to have any further invitation to conversation, to have any further invitation to fellowship, it seems to end at the round table meeting at whatever meetings we're at, and then it doesn't go any further. Mm -hmm. And so um, that, that's actually been um, very sad. And I've myself trying to reach out and connect and uh, just really very cordial beginnings that really go nowhere. And so there, there, there are a lot of walls, there are a lot of barriers, very real barriers that are set up um, between churches and clergy here, uh, whether or not the, the barriers be social economic barriers or racial barriers or the part of the city you're from barriers um, that does not allow for real community to be formed. Um, and so, at, it, but it's not just with churches, it's also with organize, organizations. As I travel around and try to find my place in this city and meet a number of different nonprofit or civil, civil activism um, 
organizations, they all seem to exist in their own silo. Mm -hmm. And they exist in silos where they're not having conversations. So um, yet I think that that is an area where the, the cumulative, the cumulative pressure, power, and influence of all of us where we're, where we're really around tables and all of our voices count can exert a greater, a greater pressure and a greater uh, catalyst for change in our city. Um, but if we, if we stick to our silos and those few occasions where we come sit around a table, pray together and sing Kumbaya, then um, that's not necessarily real and true community. Right. So there's something to be said that people are at least getting together. Mm-hmm. Something. Yes. I, hear what, I think I hear what you're saying. It's, it's not enough. There are greater opportunities for, for partnership, for understanding. And it's even interesting. I mean, I'm sure you've probably seen this as well. <clears throat> Just even isolated incidents. I was having a conversation with a key volunteer leader uh, in our church just last week about conversations he'd had with people of different ethnicities trying to understand some of what's going on in our city. The, the transformation that I saw in him, and he's yeah. someone I've known for a long time, he's a good man, you know, yeah. was just powerful. And that comes from being together over a long period of time, yeah. necessarily coming together for an yeah. annual meeting or a quarterly meeting or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, it just to me showed the power yeah. of relationship, which is really and cool. it's and it's intentional. You know, sure. Brian, it's it's intentional relationship. It's yeah. it's that Brian, I don't know you. You know, I've seen your pictures on Instagram. I know that you're a Sacramento <laughs> Kings fan to the highest degree, that and I'm great. praying for you and oh, for you. your team. Uh, <laughs> we but, yeah, I, I I've also seen you as father. Yeah, and I know that. Um, I know that even though you might not understand my experience, I know you understand what it means to be a dad. And I can be intentional about um, building a relationship with you, about sitting and talking with you, and about exhibiting uh, the kingdom affect now, the the way we're supposed to operate, the all tribes and all nations and and all tongues, experiencing some of that now. Does that mean that that are there going to be some times where I get rejected? Yes, there are going to be times where I get rejected. Are there going to be times where I'm misunderstood? Yes, there are going to be times where I'm misunderstood. But I think that the gains are greater than the losses. Yep. And um, yeah, so, so when I approach you, my assumption about you until you show me, and this is for everyone out there, I, I don't know if everyone agrees or whatever, but my assumption about you as a white man is that you're a good man until you show me something different. Mm-hmm. And um, and I expect in our growing relationship that I'm going to see that goodness come out. And when I don't, I'll call you on it. Yep. And I expect you to do the same for me. Amen. Amen. Love it. Well, man, I feel like I could sit here for another hour and just, <laughs> I just I've really enjoyed this hearing about your experience and both the, the really tough stuff and there's just even the hope that you're describing in the, you know, these sure. last few minutes is just really, uh, really fantastic. So, so thank you very much for, for the time. Uh, I sure appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, we'll be back with another regular episode here uh, next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Engaging Culture, a podcast by Bridgeway Christian Church. Music is used under the Creative Commons license and is provided by Dexter Britton.